0: Welcome to the City Church Life on Life podcast. This is week two, and we're talking about discipleship. We're talking about the lifelong process of learning from Jesus how to live in the kingdom of God here and now. And last, week, last week, we looked at Jesus' most famous story, and today we're going to look at Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, found in the Gospel of Matthew. But in particular, we're just going to be looking at the beginning of that sermon, which is commonly known as the Beatitudes, Our theme this week is the foundational posture of our life with God, the posture we always begin with and go back to, and that is the posture of humility, humility. It's noteworthy that Jesus, though he possessed every virtue in perfect measure, Jesus commended only one above all the others for us to learn from him when Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, Learn from me, for I am humble in heart. Have you ever noticed that Jesus singles out humility as the main thing that he wants us to learn from him with, with his promise that if we do, we will, quote, find rest for our souls? Life with Jesus begins and ends and always goes back to this foundational posture, humility. Jesus not only taught this humble way, but Jesus modeled it. He modeled it in washing his disciples' feet and riding in Jerusalem on a donkey uh, in laying down his life on a cross. I mean, it, it's just, it's who Jesus was. Uh, for that reason, there are numerous places we could turn to learn from him what it means to be humble, but perhaps the most illuminating is the beginning of this, his most famous sermon. And the context is important, so I want us to read together, beginning in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now we're, we're, we're just going to stop right there for today. Dan Gilbert is a scientist at Harvard who teaches one of the university's most popular courses simply called happiness. And Gilbert's thesis is that Mick Jagger had it wrong. That when it comes to why we are unhappy, it's not that we can't always get what we want. It's that we don't know what we want. Gilbert uh, proves uh, scientifically that when it comes to human happiness, we are very poor predictors of what will make us happy. It's no wonder students flock to his class, because happiness has always been the great question confronting humankind. Gilbert says, you don't know what will make you happy, so relax. But Jesus says, that's right, you don't know what will make you happy, so listen. Now, we're not accustomed to thinking of it this way, but what you have in front of you in the Beatitudes, you have Jesus' vision of human flourishing. This is the good and beautiful life according to Jesus. Blessed is our English translation of the word uh, Jesus uses, blessed are so-and-so. And we've mostly lost this word blessed today. We, we only use it generally after someone sneezes. But in the Bible, blessed are being blessed, this is a rich and strong word. It, it's, it's more, it's, it's a stronger word than what we mean when we say happiness because it has more to do than what happens to us. Rather, as I've said, Jesus is saying this is the way to the, the good life, to the flourishing life. So what I want to do today, I want to give you an overview of how to read the Beatitudes and really the Sermon on the Mount in general. An overview, and then we're going to look at the order of these first, just these first three Beatitudes. There's actually an order to a logic to all these Beatitudes. It's critical for understanding them, but we're just going to look at the first few. And and finally, we're going to look at where the power to live this new life comes from. But I want to start with an overview because it's it's important to understand the, the Sermon on the Mount and Beatitudes as a whole. And here are three things to keep in mind. First, all Christians are to be like this. The Beatitudes spell out the Christian character for every follower of Jesus. This is not an advanced course for the select few. John Stodd, who wrote a book on the Beatitudes, said, The idea that these ideals are meant for a chosen few, but that the rest of us are meant to live in the real world, this is an entire denial of our Lord's words. So th- this, is, this is the constitution, uh, you, could, you could call it the constitution of life in the kingdom. Secondly, none of, these, uh, none of these refer to what we might call a natural tendency. Jesus is not talking about personality or temperament when he says, blessed are the meek or blessed are the peacemakers. He's describing a type of life that, in fact, doesn't come naturally to any of us. It can only be produced by the Spirit of God entering into our lives, enabling us to be what, uh, left by ourselves, we never could be. In the Sermon on the Mount, you could say Jesus is spelling out an entirely different way to live. He is detailing a whole new way of being a human being, okay? And finally, the Beatitudes assume that when it comes to happiness, that you and I, that we, we, we tend to get it all wrong. Because if you ask the person on the street what will make you happy, you're likely to hear some version of more money or more comfort or more security. So much so that we're, we're, we're liable to hear Jesus' words about blessed are the poor, or blessed are those who mourn. is kind of the spiritual paradoxes that de- describing some ideal or otherworldly realm. But, but consider this. Christians believe that Jesus is not just a wise teacher. Jesus is God in the flesh. This is God among us speaking to us. So here is God saying, here is the blessed life. This is reality from God's perspective. And you can see Jesus' declaration of the blessed life is directly at odds with what the theologian Martin Luther once called successism. Which he called, quote, the most universal belief in religion on earth. Luther is saying that we naturally believe that accomplishment and achievement and gain and prosperity, that these are the paths to happiness. But here, the wisest who ever lived, God among us, tells us that when it comes to the blessed life, we've got it all wrong. So before we go any further, it's just good to pause and, and ask ourselves, you know, would, would you say you're living a blessed life? Do you, do you feel like you're flourishing? Is your life free of anxiety and free of worry, like Jesus promises later on in this very sermon? Maybe most importantly, when you read these descriptors, if, if these are norms of the new life, do you long to be the type of man or woman that Jesus describes here? So you may respect Jesus, you may acknowledge Jesus as your Savior, but do you think Jesus is smart? Do you think Jesus is wise? Which is to say, do you think He really knows what makes for a good and flourishing life? Because I submit, we can't really even hear Jesus in this sermon until we are troubled and in fact disturbed by what he's saying until we want to ask out loud really Jesus this is the blessed life this is the blessed life how could that be well because there's a logic there's a logic to the to these beatitudes and a logic to the ordering of them each builds upon the other and again uh, today we're just going to focus on the first three the, the order and logic of, of the beatitudes but let's start in verse three blessed are the poor in spirit what does it mean when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, there are plenty of places in the Bible that talk about God's concern for the poor, but to be poor in spirit is beyond our finances. When it comes to how we see ourselves, many of us may think, I've done some good things, I've done some bad things, but on the whole, the good good probably outweighs the bad. I mean, it's not like I've murdered anyone. Leaving aside for a moment that Jesus says a little later in this very sermon, well, actually, the point is we tend not to see ourselves as poor, but maybe you could say more middle-class in spirit. I mean, almost no one would dare to say they're rich, but few of us are inclined to describe ourselves the way the book of Revelation describes the church at Laodicea, as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Yet I want you to know this. Jesus begins his sermon by stating the foundational constitution of his followers is that we see ourselves as poor in spirit. What does this mean? Poor in spirit means you've come to see about yourself that that we have no currency with God. We have no leverage. We have nothing to bargain with or plead with. We've come to see not only that we owe a tremendous debt to God, but that we could never in a million lifetimes repay this debt. That in fact we are spiritually bankrupt. See, not, not middle class in spirit. We are poor in spirit. Maybe the best commentary on the Bible and what it means to be poor in spirit is the story Jesus tells in Luke 18 about a tax collector who can't even lift his eyes to heaven to pray, but can only beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here is the product of truly coming face to face with God. You truly come face to face with God, and so you truly see yourself for the first time in your life. You you are overcome with a profound sense of your own sin and your own unworthiness. It is Isaiah saying in Isaiah 6, Woe is me. It is Peter saying in Luke 5, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Jesus ends his sermon by warning that many who think they know him have never known him. That's Matthew 7, verse 22, where Jesus says, Away from me, I never knew you. But he begins his sermon by pointing out the surest sign that we have come to know him is that we have a sense on our hearts. We have a sense on our hearts that we are poor, blind, desperate, beggars. We are men and women in constant need of God's mercy and grace. And Jesus says, blessed are you if you've come to see this and know this about yourself. Notice in describing the constitution of his new followers, Jesus starts here. Number one, first, a sense on your heart that I have nothing, not one thing in my life that does or ever could commend me to God. I have no money in the bank. I have, I have no leverage with God to say that I deserve anything good. I'm utterly dependent upon God's mercy. See, if we've come to know God, we can discern it by this sure sign, a dawning sense of, you could say the word is humility, a right estimation of ourselves. I like Dallas Willard's definition of humility. He says, humility is reality. Humility is reality. It's just coming to see things the way they really are. It's coming to see who we truly are until we can say with King David, this is First Samuel 18, who am I? Who am I that I should be the son of the king? Have you ever been to a 12-step meeting? You know the first three steps of AA are often summarized. I can't. God can. I think I'll let him. I can't. God can. I think I'll let him. The AA B- Big Book adds, it is only through utter defeat that we take the first steps toward liberation and strength. It turns out that the admission of personal powerlessness is the only firm bedrock for a happy and purposeful life. Let me read that again because I don't think we, we believe that. It turns out that the admission of personal powerlessness is the only firm bedrock for a happy and purposeful life. But Now you can see that this wisdom comes directly from Jesus. It comes directly from the Beatitudes. And it is completely counterintuitive still today in our culture that prizes self-esteem and self-reliance. So you might be tempted to think, well, that's a 12-step program. I mean, something's wrong with someone who needs a 12-step program. But Jesus is saying, they might be ahead of you. Because anyone who can say, I can't, and God can, I think I'll let him, they're ahead of you because they're deeply in touch. They're deeply in touch with the truth, the universal truth of the human condition, which is one of constant need and poverty before God. And blessed are you if you see that. Because none of us likes to feel powerless. None of us likes to feel helpless. It's not in our recipe for happiness. And yet it's been said, all true spirituality emerges out of this posture of learning to let go. And I'll tell you how it feels. It feels terrifying. And yet here's Jesus saying with all of his authority, blessed are those who know, blessed are those who know they can't live without God's supernatural help. Dallas Willard once said, this is God's address at the theendofmyroad.com. That's where you find God. So, to summarize, this this feeling of spiritual poverty, this feeling of spiritual poverty is not a condition for us to escape from. It's a posture that we learn to live out of. The words of an old hymn capture the sentiment of what it means to be poor in spirit. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I claim. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That in the beginning and always, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I claim. And that brings us to the second beatitude, verse four, blessed are those who mourn. The second builds upon the first. When we see that we are not middle class in spirit, but poor and destitute, what we do, we will mourn. We mourn who we wish we were. We mourn the loss of how we've always wanted to be seen by others. Or we mourn the loss of how we've always maybe liked liked to look at ourselves. You could say we mourn the loss of our pride that we once took and who we thought we were. And we feel this lack we feel this uh, desperation, and so what do we do? We grieve. David Brainerd, who was a hero to Jonathan Edwards, who was an uh, 18th century missionary, Brainerd once wrote in his journal, In my morning devotionals, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness. Now that may sound kind of uh, glommered hour to us, but um, you could say it, it, it's, Paul, it's, like, it's like Paul saying that he is the chief of sinners. He doesn't say, I, I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. And John Stott wrote, Paul is not saying he did a careful study of every sinner in human history and found out he came in last place. Rather, when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, that we cease comparing ourselves. That Paul was so vividly aware of his sins that he could not conceive that anyone could be worse than he. Again, that may sound glum or depressing, but is there any question that American church today suffers from what we might call superficiality. And why are we so shallow? I'd like to suggest that we are not deep with God because we have a super su- superficial sense of our deep need of God's mercy. So we have a superficial sense of God's lavish grace to sinners like us. See, we live in a culture that tends to do anything to avoid negativity or sadness or grief. And yet here Jesus says with all of his authority, happy are the ones who've learned how to mourn. Happy are those who know how to mourn. Only they can be truly happy because only they can be truly honest with themselves about who they really are. So the next time you find yourself beating yourself up in shame, saying, What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my relationships? Why do I keep making the same mistakes? How many times am I going to let others down? How many times am I going to let myself down? Then remember what Jesus says Blessed are those who mourn with this promise. Then you will be comforted. So instead of wallowing in guilt, you can use that conviction to grab hold of once again your own profound need of a Savior. So you say, I can't, I can't, but God can. I think I'll let him. And you can celebrate that you have a Savior. We don't hear that enough today, that mourning our sins each day is the path to getting our hearts happy in God each day. So you see the logic to Jesus' words. You're poor in spirit because you are. That's reality. That's the truth about yourself. And if you know that is a part of your condition, then you will mourn. You will mourn because you have a true view, a right estimation of who you are before God and others. And then the logic goes, because you have a true view of yourself, that makes you, verse 5, meek. And Jesus says, and blessed are the meek. Now this is a very misunderstood word today. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his wonderful book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, says that meekness is essentially a true view of oneself that expresses itself in your attitude and conduct with respect to others. Here's what he writes. The man who is meek is not sensitive about himself. The man who is meek never pities himself. He never feels sorry for himself. He never thinks, how wonderful I really am if only other people would give me a chance, how unfairly I've been treated. No, when a man truly sees himself, he knows nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. Let me read that again. When a man truly sees himself, he knows nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. And because you know the truth about yourself is worse than, than anyone could say, you no no longer feel threatened. If you're meek, you are amazed that God or anyone else could think as well as you as they do. So does this describe you? Because it's very different from what the world in our own heart says. See, the world says, blessed are the the self-confident. But Jesus says, no, blessed are the meek. Now, sometimes you hear meekness described as power under control, like a a bodybuilder holding a tiny baby, or like a great warrior with a sharp sword sheathed. And there's truth in that, that that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is the incredible strength and courage of of restraint, of holding back with gentleness. When your natural instinct would be to lash out or fight back, especially against those who are criticizing you or, or, or coming after you. But the meek man or woman, because, follow the logic, because she knows she's bankrupt, poor in spirit, and because he mourns his true condition, So you don't take offense when criticized, even if you're criticized unfairly, because you know the truth about yourself. Meekness is the tremendous strength of power under control that refuses to indulge in self-pity. You know, you've stopped saying, poor me. And Jesus says, blessed are you if you've learned to prize meekness. So you see the logic. You mourn because you, you see your poverty of spirit. And you're meek because you have a true view of yourself. And that makes you the fourth beatitude. It makes you hunger and thirst for righteousness, hunger and thirst for this new life. But we're, we're we're going to stop there for today. But right about now, if you're anything like me, you might be thinking to yourself, "Lord, this this doesn't sound anything like me. I'm not poor in spirit. I'm a proud person, and and I don't mourn over my sin. I I, I like to whine or complain, and I'm certainly not meek. I'm, I tend to be defensive." Jesus hasn't even gotten into his sermon, and already a conscientious listener must ask, "Jesus, are you serious? Is this really the new life that you're calling us to here and now? Is this is this possible? Is this practical?" And that leads. Uh, Finally, to, where, where does the power, where does the power to live this new life come from? Well, the whole Sermon on the Mount, this great sermon on doing, after all, that's how the sermon ends. This is Matthew 7, verse 23, where Jesus says, Blessed is the one who hears these words of mine and does them. But notice where it begins. This great sermon on doing begins by focusing on what we cannot do, it begins with what Dale Bruner called these beatitudes of need. Beatitudes of need, poverty, mourning, meekness, these are not accomplishments. Jesus' sermon begins by saying, you lack the capacity to do everything I'm going to ask you to do. See, I can't. From the sermon's outset, we learn we don't have the capacity to put any of its precepts into practice. Del Bruner says the whole purpose of the Sermon of the Mount, the whole purpose of the Sermon of the Mount, and it's every part in all of its demands, is to drive us back again and again to these first foundational beatitudes of need. Because you, you hear this, you hear these beatitudes and may think to yourself, Oh, that's not me. I'm, I'm not poor in spirit. I'm not me. And that's right. And you, you, can't, you can't go forward in your life with God until, until you're in touch with reality, until your feet are on the ground. The ground is the only safe place to be. So you have to be grounded. And, and, and this is the ground of reality, that we are poor in spirit. So we have to become humble people who learn to constantly depend on God's mercy and constantly ask for his grace. And that is fantastically hard for a prideful person like me to do, to keep asking for God's charity because it means I have to keep asking for a gift I could never repay. But this is the central dynamic of life in God's kingdom. You could sum it up this way. Jesus, life and power flows into us and is available to us precisely to the degree We sense and acknowledge our ongoing need of it. Jesus is not setting a bar. He's not telling the crowd how to become his followers, or today we say Christians. The Beatitudes are not a ladder with eight rungs. No, to whom is he speaking? Look at the text. The context is critical. Matthew 5 verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. See, the crowd's there to overhear, but Jesus is talking directly to those who were already his followers. See, the whole sermon is premised upon these first three Beatitudes, that you already follow Jesus. You already know what it is to be in need. You've already received God's grace. You already have this new life within you. So now, now, Jesus is going to show you the content of this new life. So as you read the Sermon on the Mount, or really any demands in the New Testament, when you get discouraged... You have to remember how the whole sermon started with this brutal assessment of our own perpetual need. See, these beatitudes of need. Then this beautiful Sermon on the Mount, instead of crushing us with an ideal we can never live up to, instead becomes a beautiful picture of who, by his grace, Jesus intends for us to become. This is how we begin to live the new life. This is how we place our lives under new management, by coming face to face from the very beginning by our own inability to, to manage our own lives see i can't god can i think i'll let him and we see that's not just an admission for addicts it's an admission for anyone who wants to walk in the new life and and to the point that we no longer fear admitting our inadequacies or admitting our failures blessed are the poor in spirit the mourning, and the meek jesus is detailing the good and beautiful life that we can only find by living in fellowship with him. I I like how Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, clearly there is one place where all these Beatitudes come together. The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified one. He's saying the Beatitudes describe Jesus. I mean, after all, he was poor in spirit. Didn't Jesus say, this is John 5, I can do nothing on my own? You hear? I can't. I can do nothing on my own. What about mourning? Well, wasn't Jesus a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief? And isn't he the one we've already seen who describes his own heart as humble and meek? But not only do these words describe Jesus himself, they describe the life that Jesus died to enable his followers to live. The Lord Jesus Christ died to enable us to live this new life spelled out even in these Beatitudes. Yes, it seems impossible, but the power of possibility starts with these Beatitudes of need so that we might turn to the one who is speaking who, after all, is not poor, but in whose hands are immeasurable riches and power, and ask Jesus to to enable us to walk out as already forgiven people into this new life that he offers us. In terms of last week's sermon of the prodigal son, Jesus is saying, you have been embraced, so now learn to walk out this new life as forgiven and free and beloved children. We started the sermon talking about a scientist at Harvard who said, we don't know what will make us happy, and Jesus says, that's right. So let me, the wisest one who ever lived, show you how to live a flourishing life. And above all, what should be our posture as we, as we seek to walk in this new life? We've seen that life with God begins, ends, and always goes back to this foundational posture of humility. Humility is reality. It's grounding us grounding us. And to ground us, Jesus drives us back to these opening beatitudes of need. And he tells us in all of his wisdom and authority, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. Well, do you want this blessed life that Jesus talks about? Well, here's the catch. All you need is need. And you have to learn to be comfortable living there with Jesus. Okay, we'll see you next week.